is it always consider those examples as racism of I'm trying to oppress a people group or is it sometimes just setting a stand saying this is my country and this is a standard we want to have so if my culture is not part of that system I'm disadvantaged so there's a difference between weeding somebody out because they're lesser than I wouldn't say that the, the, the case is always uh, to discriminate. You know, there is little resources and therefore there's competition for resources. Until Black is diluted, it is not accepted. But the general population doesn't fully understand. They just don't. And they don't understand when somebody says, you're racist right away. I'm glad we, we're, we're talking about this today. Well, welcome to uh, Both Sides Now Table Talk. Uh, we've got an exciting show ahead of us. I'm Michelle Pexa, your host. I'm with our panelists, Serena Preslin-White and Alberta Mwembo. And also we have special guests with us uh, today. Um, again, so grateful that they could be with us. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Abigail Zita Seshi. Um, she's originally from Ghana. Um, she moved to Canada. Canada in 2012 to pursue a master's degree in social justice and equity studies at Brock University. And later she completed her doctorate um, from the University of Saskatchewan and is now a lecturer there um, in sociology at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Zita's research interests include gender, social policy, and international development. And we're probably going to find out a lot more about her because she's she's got lots of interests working in with, with women's issues. And so welcome, uh, Dr. Zita. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's an honor to be part of this important uh, discussion. Our other guest is uh, Will William Ford III, and I'm going to call him Will as we go on. But but Will is the former director um, of the Marketplace Leadership major at Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, Texas. And you know him internationally for his family heirloom passed down through history and its connection to slavery and freedom. So we might hear a little bit about that in our show. Will's also an accomplished author. His fourth book is The Dream King, How the Dream of Martin Luther King is Being Fulfilled to Heal Racism in America. So welcome, Will, to our show. Yeah. Well, we're we're really excited about today's topic. It, it's a hot topic. It's a it's a, it's it's a topic that can at times create a lot of tension with people, but it's important. And again, one of the reasons for this platform is we want to have discussion from both sides to really complex, difficult issues. We're talking about racism today. The problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color the line relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea. You know, it's a, a powerful statement. 1619 here in, here in America, when 19 and some odd Africans were traded for victuals, at that moment, for the first time, um, we saw the color of skin in our nation um, be uh, stigmatized that, that the color of, of, of people who are from Africa be stigmatized, dehumanized uh, to the place where they were commoditized, you know, commoditized and, and traded just for, for victuals. So from that moment on, things did uh, 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 basically that, that sowed this scarlet thread of dehumanization, slavery, and everything else, racism into our nation. and. 
there's so much turmoil going on in our nation right now because people are pulling on that scarlet thread right now, trying to rip out the fabric of our nation. And, and we very well should. But also we see that scarlet thread going all around the world uh, in, in many shape, form and fashion. So um, the whole idea of people being traded uh, for, 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 for like a commodity is, is horrible, it's, it's horrific, and uh, it needs to be dealt with. And we're still dealing with the ramifications. We started here in America. We, we had indigenous service at first, but then um, once that Dutch ship came in and traded uh, the black people on it, the African people on it for for food, that's when everything changed. And then in 1660, they actually passed a law saying anyone of African descent cannot ever be free from slavery, where everybody else only had to spend six years in, in uh, being uh, in indigenous servitude. So everything shifted after that. So uh, colorism, yeah, that was that was part of it, but mainly there was a major focal point. The focal point was that was whiteness was considered good, and and anyone who was from African African descent was considered a slave and not not even human. Now, when it comes to the issue of color, it is important that in Ghana, when the European came and they forcefully. Uh, mated with the indigenous women and they had children called the mulatto missionary schools and education started because of the mulatto because they wanted to educate them and so school started from a place of privilege and the people that were able to get the education was the children of the white colonialist and the indigenous people the mulatto the mixed race and so that is where it starts and so when you just oppose it to um slavery because ghana experienced colonialism that is where colorism started whereby those who were lighter got access to education first before it trickled down. When you bring it to the American context, you realize that there is something called the field Negro and the house Negro. The house Negro were the children um, of the slave master that you know forcefully impregnated the female slaves and so the children they had they were kept in the house they did the domestic work and most of them became informants and therefore they would inform on their own parents and half black siblings who were working hard in the field and so this has followed us all the way to now when white people talk about blackness they're talking about barack obama and kamala michelle um kamala harris sorry these are the accepted black. Until black is diluted, it is not accepted. And so when we are looking at the issue of colorism, it is important to understand the histor historical context and how of a light skin have been privileged from the beginning. You know, having access to education in the colonial context in Africa. And then when it came to America, being the house Negro, being in the house, eating better food and being informants watched over their black siblings who worked hard. There was a label put on the blacks versus the whites from the very beginning. Um, and then and then we're even talking about um, not just a label that you're going to be a slave forever, but also there's the piece that you brought out, Zita, that there was actually an advantage to being lighter. So so there was greater privilege. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the lighter the skin gave them greater opportunity. And those ones had were treated better, as you're saying, like they, they got to do better work. They were in the house. They weren't working hard in the field. So they actually had the advantage. So I guess to a people, they'd be saying like, it'd be way better 
to be lighter skinned. If I was just a bit lighter, I would have more opportunity. If I was just a bit lighter, I would have greater education. And then you mentioned even where they would they would turn on their own family member, both the label of this is your lot in life, you are a slave for life because you are you are you are black, but also the mindset and the belief systems of the black people it was that they didn't have any worth unless they were whiter or they didn't have opportunity. And a lot of that too was perpetuated, of course, by the slave masters. They had a system uh, where they uh, uh, really acculturated people into that uh, kind of thinking where um, the, the, the house Negro, field Negro working against each other. Um, they, they used to, uh, Frederick Douglass talked about this in one of his autobiographies. And uh, he said that the slave master would, would craft a way to get the house Negro and field Negro to work against each other so that they would tell the slave master anything he wanted because they didn't have them pit against each other. And, uh, you know, the, you know we, we, what we always talked about in the community is like you put a bunch of crabs in one bucket. If you, one crab gets to the top, one always pulls it back down. And that's kind of what we saw. They're working on the plantation, especially with the field Negro, house Negro, especially with the field Negro, always, without house Negro, always coming against what was happening out in the field so it could carry favor, even more favor, more power, more glory there on, on the plantation. But all that was engineered by the peculiar institution called slavery. Also, too, you see that kind of mindset later on uh, What after we get out of, uh, you know, during the time of Jim Crow and others, uh, people who could pass for white began to do that. Uh, then with our, uh, even our colleges and fraternities, sororities, uh, if you were darker than a paper sack, you couldn't be in certain fraternities, sororities, or couldn't move up there up on the college campuses. So there was this, always this infight. And then even uh, personally, like in, in some of my family's uh, members uh, and my wife's family, uh, were actually ostracized because they were darker skinned than other people in their family. And uh, quiet, closet folks who were really, uh, really African-American, but they were mulatto and did not want anybody to find out about who they were because they didn't want to give up the privilege that they had in life. Yeah. So colorism, yeah, has been an interesting thing that people uh, haven't talked out a, a lot about, just kind of just run uh, through um, uh, black culture, American culture, and um, I'm glad we, we're, we're talking about this today. They would work the people like pawns. They would they would they would use they would use the human psyche to work itself against each other, and and I mean for for the for the people uh, that were slaves, they would have just wanted their needs met, and who doesn't want to not have to be oppressed? It is important that when we are talking about the issue of slaves, Black people and our new discourse is we were enslaved. We are not slaves. Right. That's good point. Make that distinction. Nobody can put the label on you that you are a slave. We are not slaves. The best way to keep people down is through ideology. So the issue of likeness is a social construct. You know, that likeness is better. That is because blackness have always been seen as a political, in a political. And so it is done through ideology. And it is important that this particular um, understanding is brought to the fore. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Because again, we don't even realize the language that we use. And we don't realize how we're reinforcing ideologies just by using language. And it really is ignorance. Like it really is because again, it's passed down for so many generations that you just don't even know. I've traveled overseas quite a bit. And I've noticed 
when I've gone into Asian cultures even. Uh, so in Myanmar, and I've noticed too that they would put white stuff on their face. And I asked them, like, why are you doing this? At first I thought, like, is it a sunscreen? Like, what is it? And I realized afterwards that they actually wanted to look whiter. So the mindset was like that there. And again, you go to most um, African countries and we rate high on bleaching. You know, we rate high on bleaching. We bleach our skin to look um, lighter because it is just part of everything. For you to get, depending on your career, even a job, you go to a job for an interview, the lighter you look, the less threatening you look. If you wear your natural hair and you wear dreadlocks, I came to Canada with dreadlocks initially, and it would uh, just taint and block the opportunities that you are able to get. It is important that we have to minimize being black. And that includes having a lighter skin tone and having more refined hair and just looking more Western. So the more of the European uh, norms, your Eurocentric norms that you um, inculcated and became the better you were accepted and the better the opportunity. We're, we're talking about um, the impact, for example, of those that were enslaved, um, that were brought into in North America. But what about in African cultures themselves? Um, you know, that uh, that weren't in Western culture amongst their own people with tribes, various tribes themselves. Does this phenomenon take place within the tribes? Do they, is there a preference for being whiter? Is there an ideology that it's better to be whiter within tribes within Africa, for example? I think that uh, the colorism came uh, as a result of the colonial encounter. You know, um, because when a people, like I was saying, when I was in Ghana, I'm a bl I'm black. Everybody's black in Ghana. I, I never knew about race. I never knew I belonged to a category of race. I mean, I knew it based on watching television, but in terms of what it meant and how that virtually interpreted my opportunities and how people reacted to me and how I was treated, I never knew until I came to Canada and I, and I realized that I am perceived as a black woman. When I came to Canada, I was colorblind because I just do everything, you know, I sit anywhere because of the way I grew up. I grew up in a place where everybody looks like me. The element of distinction became your social class and your gender. Those became practices of oppression or privilege. You know, your gender, your, um, your tribe, or we call it ethnic groups, the language you spoke, and your social class. But when I came here, I realized that the basic point of negotiation was my race, that everybody saw me as black and that meant different things for different people. And so I would say that um, based on the trajectory of what has happened, I do not believe that the issue of colorism was a problem pre the colonial encounter, before the colonial encounter, because until white people uh, navigated and, uh, came and, and came to Africa, and saw that there were people different than them, that is when the ideology of you know, whiteness or being closer to the lighter shade is seen as superior. And again, it is a social construct. There is no validity to it. And I don't think that such things existed in among tribal groups. That's fair enough, because why would there be if, if there was no white influence? Why would you know that you're better if you're whiter or not? It makes no sense, you know. We're going to talk about, the, yeah, again, the concept of racism, because I think there's different definitions. I think there's there, people understand that definition a little bit differently. What is racism? 
Can I ask that question? Can you define racism, pure racism? Racism is not hate, dislike, or prejudice against people because of their skin color. Racism is not. Racism, or what we call it in social, uh, sociology, is racialization. Because racism, oh, I don't like it because it's racialization. It's a continuous process whereby where people have the backing of systemic power. So racism is a form of prejudice that is backed by systemic power to oppress people, non-white people. So your definition of racism is that it is a form of prejudice, but it's connected to a systemic power. So, so somebody somehow has some kind of power or force from a system that can, can actually act on that prejudice to disadvantage or to oppress a people group based on their race, but it's definitely, you're saying it's connected to a systemic systemic power. Hey, that we moved to Canada in 2014. Today is 2020. When we look at the definition of racism, today it's based on a system. And that's the definition that Dr. Zita was, uh, was giving. So academically, it's based on a system, but if we look at the, the, the initial definition was based on another human being hitting another human being for their phenotype. And I think for personally, I think that uh, that's the best definition when another human being hits another human being just based on their phenotype. However, that does not deny the fact that um, a lot of, like I said earlier, a lot of Eurocentric systems were put in place Historically, we know the facts, and those systems benefits knowingly or unknowingly a lot of white people. I would say it's prejudice plus power. I, I would agree with the, her definition to a large degree. You look what happened with Hitler and the Jews. That's exactly what happened with that and anti-Semitism and other things. It's, uh, it's, it's prejudice taken to the next level. That's really good to know because I honestly don't think people understand it in that term at all. Like, I, I think the average person does not understand, you know, okay, unless I was living in America, and again, you've had experiences here, Zita, here in Canada. As I said, I'm a little Saskatchewan girl. It wasn't even part of our, you know, awareness because there were, there were not many black people here, like really. So it wasn't, but racism would have been there um, with the First Nation people, for sure. That was definitely an issue with First Nation people. And there was a lot of issues around that, but there was racism against the 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 chinese you know so there was there was all kinds of racism going on with the blacks themselves there was not uh, as much of awareness i was if i was sitting in academia and i was learning all of this i would have all the knowledge and understanding as to what this means but the general population doesn't fully understand they just don't and they don't understand when somebody says you're racist right away yes i just wanted to say that so when people go like oh um you know a black person is racist or, or an asian person is racist this is what we need to understand if i dislike you because you're white and because of the historical experiences of what my ancestors have gone through or being dehumanized or being sold or being raped or being just told you're not human. If I dislike you based on that premise, it is just a feeling in my heart. But when a white person dislikes me, the system backs it. And there's something called the social structure. The social structure is what we call political, um, religious, education, economic, 
these are the systems that and health these are the system that runs every society and the entire world right. the system are premised on what eurocentric ideals africans had the chieftaincy system or a king system Europeans came and said politics and what democracy. When there is war, they go like these people are oh, Africans are barbaric, they don't know how to act. But that democracy that said people should vote is what is based on what? Western ideology. Economically, you look at structural adjustment programs. This might be um, you know, a bit ahead of people, but structural adjustment programs are just economic programs spearheaded by the World Bank and yet telling African countries that until you do this and that, you will not develop. That is an economic par parameter. It is important that when we are singing racism, it is rooted in the structures that control society. Structures I've men mentioned are political, economic, health, religion, even marriage. You come to Ghana, we had our own traditional marriage. These days in Africa, people call their own traditional marriage an engagement. And unless they wear a white gown and go to church for a priest to bless their marriage, they don't feel married. How many white people wear African out outfits to get married? No. So why does the black person mimic a white culture? Because we only feel married when we wear a white wedding gown and go to church. This is what we call racism. It is rooted in the institutions that govern society. So if you are not part, if your culture by default of being white, you have the privilege because that is that is your Eurocentric norms and values. That is for you and that is how the whole world works. So if my culture is not part of that system, I'm disadvantaged. And so it has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with systemic power. And if that power backs your feelings, then you are racist. The systems that you're talking about, especially with colonization, were set up to have power. It was always about power. Not every nation in the world was colonized, though. But imagine coming to Canada. Do you know that for you to get your Canadian immigration, you have to write an English test. Have you taken a, a good look at the questions on the test? They are all Eurocentric, talking about museums and different levels of expression. So if you are not a European and not raised in a home where your parents had that cultural capital, where your parents went to school to gain the Eurocentric norm, how do you pass? So it's not a matter of certain countries not being colonized. The world is being run on a Eurocentric, and like I said it, White people did a good job of making sure that they created a system that was running on their ideas and values. And that is just racism. Yeah. So, so, so I'm just going to stop you for a second because so that's kind of the history of things. Um, your example, however, about the kind of questions to come into our country, it, it might, you know, you know, we're talking about power. Some power is to oppress, some power is to control. So every country has a right to control who they want to come in their country. So I'm just saying, for example, my understanding that for a period of time for Canada, they, they only wanted people coming into the country that would contribute to the country. So for example, someone that's educated or they have the ability to be educated and they would contribute and not take from the country. That was actually set in place intentionally. They might actually put those questions in place, not, not necessarily because I'm being, uh, you know, uh, 
to oppress you, but actually because I'm not going to let you in my country. So for example, we have someone I know from India that wants to come into Canada, and currently he can't get into Canada because he comes from a poor Dalit community, and they don't believe that he will contribute to Canada. In, for Indians, for example, it's usually the upper caste. They have money, they have status, they have education. They can come into Canada very easily. You will never see a lower caste Indian come into Canada because they forbid it, or, or you have to be sponsored um, because you're a refugee, but you rarely are gonna come into Canada as if you're gonna be contributing. So. So also, I'm wondering, like in other countries, do they not control who they're going to let come into their nation because they have to look after their own citizens first. So if we're going to let other people come from other countries, that's the mindset I understand. So is it considered racism or is it considered that's how we're controlling who comes in? What I was my point is not who, who comes in. In Canada, when you're coming, you don't necessarily write an English test. But my point is that I have a PhD. But for me to get my Canadian permanent residence as part, and I had this discussion with the Minister of um, Immigration when he came to the University of Saskatchewan to talk to African students, and I have a PhD and have to go and sit and write an English test. You must be kidding. You gave me, I got a master's and a, a PhD, and I had to go and sit and write an English test just to get my uh, a permanent residence. And so it is not even about coming in. Once you prove that you have a university education, you can come in, but you want to retain. And that is why sometimes people leave Canada and telling people who have doctorates and masters to tell them that you have to. It is part of the way to submit your profile for the express entry. You have to have an English uh, test and you have to score this. And the questions on those tests, even the accent, that because you have to do a listening test, and the accents and, and, and the questions on those tests has nothing to do with a non-European person. And you have to study for it. Even though I had a PhD, I had to study. I get the point about it feeling very humiliating because we've even seen people that will have PhDs and they're working at Home Depot or they're driving a taxi. And and there's there's other variables we can talk about. Is this racism or is it that they actually don't have some things in place that the country requires, like, can you speak English clearly so that you can communicate with the people here in Canada? If I go to live in in Quebec, which is completely a different culture, it's completely a different culture, I probably would not be able to get employed without demonstrating that I can speak French fluently. And right now in Canada, they will never elect a prime minister of Canada if they cannot speak French fluently. Um, it is completely, even if he's perfectly white and perfectly has all of the status, he will not get elected as a prime minister of Canada unless he can speak French fluently because there's a good percentage of French speaking people um, in some countries. The style of leadership is command control. The, the, the person in authority, you obey them, you submit to them, you don't question them. In Canada, they've moved more to what I would call more of an empowerment model. So what happens is people come in highly educated and they don't get promoted um, because they don't have some of the soft skills. They just they just tell the people what to do. They're very direct. They and the people don't like that. And then they wonder why I'm not getting promoted. And then they just then they try to get more education. So they because they think that's going to qualify because in their country, the higher the education gives them higher opportunities. But in a lot of workplaces, it's not higher education. It's having soft skills. It's having certain abilities to work within that culture. That's what they're looking for employers. So back coming back to this is it 
always consider those examples as racism of I'm trying to oppress a people group or is it sometimes just setting a stand saying this is my country and this is a standard we want to have and if you want to come in we want you to meet those standards. Erica you know we kind of deal with some of the same things I think the question is are you asking the questions and are you asking a set of questions for the person who really desires to want to be in your country so they're willing to learn the language not just the language they want to know the history they know uh who your you know your founding presidents were all these different know something about the american history those type of things people who are willing to go through that and uh does they, they show a love for your country that they want to contribute to the country so there's that but then there's also the thing of saying saying and writing things in a certain way to weed the people out that you want to have less of, um, which gets us into another discussion, which I, I'd like to talk to about this time, not right now, but in the middle of this time trail, we'll, we need to talk about eugenics because I believe that's the pink elephant in the room when it comes to talking about the racist. So, so there's a difference between weeding somebody out because they're lesser than, but then there's another thing of uh, making sure that the people who are coming into your country they decide to be there so much so they're willing to learn about your history, your country, your, your, your language, all those different things. And that that just exhibits that they want to be contributors to the society. Yeah, so um, as you know, we, we're from Congo and Congo was colonized by Belgium, meaning that my dad studied in, with the Belgian system, which is very different from the British system. I think Canada follows the British system. And so this issue is not new to my dad. He also experienced that in Kenya. When we moved to Kenya, Kenya is a British colonized country. It was also required that my dad takes the exam and all every other, all these things that is also required here in Canada. Uh, but in Kenya, it was cheaper. And in some, somehow he could, um, he could work not as a physician, but like in the lab or just something related to medicine. But in Canada, it's, a, it's very complex. It's a little bit uh, uh, challenging than in Africa. And again, I'm, I'm wondering about the intention behind those that have set up the standards, right? Because we're looking at what's the intention. Is, is the intention to oppress a people to discriminate against the people from a place of a, a system of power to oppress them. Is that always the case, you know, with every standard that's set up? Or is it is it that there are, like there's competition, for example, with nurses as well, or like the Department of Psychology, you weed out everybody that, that doesn't meet up? I wouldn't say that the, the, the case is always uh, to discriminate. You know, there is little resources and therefore there's competition for resources. I understand when Dr. Zita is talking about discrimination. So there is discrimination, but and there's also competition of resources. I think you have to look at all these variables, you know, to really get at what's really going on, what's being perpetuated, because of course there is racism how much is it being perpetuated in these systems currently is everything a perpetuation of it is it even ignorance that's perpetuating it you know what i mean uh, i did present on this issue of reaccreditation and the professor um you know made a good comment you know that i didn't think about and with the with the field of medicine i mean it has to be regulated because for instance uh, she said that the resources that are used to train doctors in africa is definitely different like canadian doctors cannot cure you of malaria so even when i was going back to ghana they made sure i took a vaccine even though i've gotten malaria multiple times so it's not it's not like i'm immune but it won't kill me but they had to make sure 
um, you know, I'm responding because if I got malaria and I came back, then there's nothing they can do. African doctors can cure malaria and different tropical diseases. So again, these processes are there to ensure that, you know, you are trained with different resources and equipped to um, address different health issues. And you talked about Canada having, you know, an empowerment module and in different parts of the world, they have, you know, autocracy. But the question is, under which lens are we saying this culture or this leadership is autocratic. We need to understand Ghana had a chieftaincy system and king's rule. And when you did something, this is they would tell you, okay, you did this, you took somebody's wife or you slept with somebody's wife, then you have to pay, let's say, a hundred pieces of calories. Would you say from, uh, so when we are looking at styles of leadership, and you are interpreting it from a Eurocentric perspective that, oh, we are empowerment, we are democratic. It is important to understand that in itself informs the issue of racism because you are judging people's leadership style based on your understanding of what leadership should be. Oh, this is autocratic. They are being told what to do. And this is more of a liberal style. And that has led to a lot of conflict in Africa. If you look at Libya and the consistency of war. So it is important that when we are understanding leadership, we we, we broaden the scope. It could be a form of democracy that yeah. you have somebody, a leader. You, it could be a form of democracy. But when we put labels or, or labels of this is an autocratic leadership, then it makes it problematic and people rebel and then there are issues. So we, we need to thread cautiously. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I just want to comment that because, again, I've been in management consulting for 23 years and the styles of leadership have changed even in Canada. So so there was a time when Canada, their approach to leadership in companies was what you would call command control. And, uh, you know, what we have in terms of history, you, you talk about, you know, labor unions coming in. There was, you know, it was oppression they would oppress the people the boss what you said went like like a king would rule there was no input from from uh the employees um you know there was and that's you know i'm thinking about you know when my husband first went into labor force or i did you were actually under that model of leadership and that would have been i would have thought that would have been more like the british model i don't know and but what happened over time in companies is that changed and they wanted to move into what you call more of an empowerment model and there's a lot of issues around that but but to, so to me from my experience it's been there's been changes depending on what's taking place in society because it's definitely swung and and so if you've got countries coming in that are used to a more of a command control model of leadership that was the style and they're coming into the current style of for example in Canada there is a clash you know, there really is a clash and and people don't understand. And I said, like, that's where I would discover, you know, I because I did my specialized in conflict and I would have to sit down with uh, with people coming from other countries and I would totally get their hearts and I would totally get that, that what they were trying to do. But they didn't have the skills for that particular culture, workplace culture. And so they didn't understand why they couldn't get promotions because they would demand something and it wouldn't work. And their style was just to be clear and concise. But the people were used to, we should talk about this, right? So, so it's not a matter of one's right or wrong. I'm saying it has changed in Canada. And you know, I have personal views on which style I think is better or what works better, depending on the culture of the workplace. But I'm not sure if I would say that currently the leadership style in the workplace is 100% based on, on the colony we came from because I think it has evolved.